Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 222 with Toby Scovron of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What is going on, my fellow founders? Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan. I'm coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia. It is 1.44 a.m. and I am hustling. Uh, we got a lot going on at Founder. Uh, all exciting things, all good things. Um, we're growing quite fast at the moment, hiring a lot of people, launching a lot of new products. We got a lot of cool stuff in store for you guys. We're doing a lot of cool stuff. So let's talk about today's guest, Toby Scovron, and uh, he's a local Melbourneian, and he runs a company called Creative Cubes. He actually runs quite a few companies, but um, I know him mainly for Creative Cubes, a, a co-working space where we've spent a bit of time there at Founder, and uh, we've shot a bit of content there, and he's just a, an amazing guy. So um, yeah, I want to hear his backstory. So we talked about everything that he's done and, and how he's trying to take on the world with his new co-working space and ventures, and he's... Uh, crazy dude. You're going to learn a ton from him. He also started a company called Petlu, which did very, very well and was actually acquired. And we talked about the business model side of things, which we don't really, you know, I don't really get that much into the business model side of things. And, you know, how does your business create value? How does it make money? So we talk about all sorts of different things. Um, So guys, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps us more than you can imagine. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. So the first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? Job? Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't think I have a job, man. Honestly, <laughs> I, um, I, I've actually never had a job. Um, I never felt like I am going to work. I'm legitimately um, passionate, probably maybe too passionate about what I'm doing. Um, sometimes I lose my head in that because I just love it and I do it for the love of the game. But the reality is I, I don't feel like I have a job. Awesome. So, so, so how did you find uh, yourself doing the work you're doing today? Can you tell us a little bit about um, your journey and, and what you're working on right now and, and, and what led to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the journey is, uh, has pretty much le led me to where I'm at, right? So uh, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I was born and raised in Sydney, Bondi Beach, or North Bondi. Um, grew up there uh, with, with a mom. Unfortunately, uh, I lost my father when I was a lot younger. Oh, so I grew up with that, his, man. Yeah, man. Uh, and, it's, and it's painful, but, you know, like, the reality is I don't think I'd be who I am, what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera, if, if that wasn't, uh, you know, that, 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 that disruption didn't happen in my life. So grew up with a single mom, two, two sisters, was kind of like the man of the house. Um, and this entrepreneur, lay, lay, this entrepreneur being lay dormant, lay dormant in me for forever. As a young kid, you know, I had aspirations of, starting shops and doing a whole bunch of different things. Um, I love sneakers. I'm a bit of a sneakerhead. I'm not crazy sneakerhead. Like I don't go to shows and, and, and sort of like meetups and all that, but like uh, every city that I go to, I have to stop by a sports store or a unique shoe store to see what's up. And so sort of start, started studying podiatry. <laughs> all my friends were doctors, lawyers, dentists, you know, uh, surgeons, etc., and I felt that at the young age I needed to try and keep up with those people because that was my crowd. And so I studied podiatry, but the spin on it I had was I'd love to be able to create a fashionable and but functional shoe, sort of like an Asics, but like Nike, like so like Nike cool funky retro, but like Asics, uh, uh, taking into consideration the biomechanics of the foot. How long ago and is so this? This was in like 98, 99, 2000. Wow. So you into sneakers like back then? Dude, I like crazy for sneakers. I get it 100% from my grandmother who um, was so poor that uh, she used to wear cardboard, uh, put cardboard in the, in, in the bottoms of her shoes um, because she just didn't want to let her shoes go. She loved shoes that much. Um, and so she literally wore them to the death. And then when the shoes were about to die, she would put cardboard in them to sort of try and keep the soles intact. But I totally get it from my grandmother. Um, and I've loved shoes forever. But um, And I'm sitting here today in a pair of Jordan ones just, just, for, just for context. Um, so, um, wanted to, so I studied podiatry thinking, hey, I'll be a doctor that, that creates really cool shoes. Um, three years in, learning about skin disease, dystropathy, like all the revolting stuff, fungus. I was like, I went to my mom and I was like, listen, like, I'm really sorry, but this is just not for me. I, 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 I'll promise you I'll make you proud one day, but right now I, I can't continue to do this. This is just not my, not my flavor. And my mom was like, you do what you want to do. Anyway, during my time in university, I was, uh, I was working at Athlete's Foot and Foot Locker 
I started at Foot Locker, then moved across to Athlete's Foot because it was considered more of a, a science focus than, than sort of like fashion at Foot Locker. And then sort of like tried to convince my mom that I'd be an amazing franchise owner of an Athlete's Foot store. <laughs> it's so dumb when I look back at it, but, but that was sort of like, mom, I can do this. I love this. I can make this a success. Anyway, she, um, she was like, no, I think, I think you can do other things. Anyway, long story short, I met this beautiful girl. Um, along the journey, uh, we fell in love. I moved from Sydney to Melbourne and um, literally was kind of a little bit lost uh, uh, professionally because I kind of was like I'm a university dropout. You know, I haven't disappointed my mom. My mom believes I'm in, I can do bigger and better things, but I haven't found that thing yet. Met this beautiful girl, moved from Sydney to Melbourne. Over a period of time, it was like a year after we started seeing each other that I moved. Um, because she was in university and I, uh, I was kind of like not, <laughs> and, uh, we, we, I rented a one bedroom apartment in Melbourne and my girlfriend at the time, who's now thankfully my wife, um, and mother of my two kids. Um, and we live in a very loving home. Um, I, I bought her a dog, um, who's actually also with us and roaming the floors here at creative cues, but. I bought her a dog and Sim said to me, Tobes, we just need a patch of backyard on our balcony because we lived in a one bedroom apartment. And that was the eureka moment, Nathan. Like that was this entrepreneurial instinct just took over. And over the next 10 years, I basically built a dog waste management company and a, and a thriving brand in the global pet industry that was in 2013 acquired for all cash by the largest player in the space called PetSafe. Ah, I see. And uh, you, you spent a lot of time in the States. Was that yeah. for, for that? PetLoo, yeah. Pet, so yeah, the company is called PetLoo? Yeah, it was. P-E-T-L-O-O, PetLoo. Um, and it's exactly what it stood for, Pet Toilet. Um, and then I basically built out a bunch of value add products and ultimately from a business for, for the business enthusiasts listening to the podcast today, you know, I, I turned that business or that product into a printer paper ink cartridge business model. So for every loo that was purchased, I would see recurring revenues through our consumable products, um, which were, you know, made to fit, designed to complement, and, um, and it became a very nice, nice business. In, in 2008, sort of like five years after I'd moved to Melbourne and, uh, and the business was, up, like business was thriving in Australia, Sim said to me, Toes, would you, would you like to live abroad? And I said, yeah, but we've got a, we've got a business now. Like, I can't just pick up and just walk away from this. She's like, well, what if we sort of like took a, the next year to sort of like orientate a managing director for the Australian business, which would then free you up to be able to go and execute the business abroad. And we could kind of live and, and work as a young couple, young married couple and sort of like throw ourselves to, to the world. Right. And so in 2009, I moved to Los Angeles. Um, the, 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 the end of the, that, the previous conversation was Sim says to me, I was like, she says, what do you think? I was like, yeah, I'm in. Like, where do you want to go? And she goes, where do you want to go? I go, no, 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 I asked you first. And she said, like, on the count of three, you say where you want to go, I'll say where I want to go. So one, two, three. She said LA, 
And I said, Los Angeles. So in 2009, um, April 22, 2009, um, I got on a flight a week ahead of Sim because she was flying a week later with the dogs and basically found an apartment, set us up, and we lived in the early days we lived in Venice Beach um, and then we moved to Brentwood, which is infamous for O.J. Simpson. We spent a year in Beverly Hills. Sounds really exotic and really great. It was actually in an apartment, not in the hill, but on the flats in, in Beverly Hills. <laughs> um, and then we ended up going back to Brentwood uh, the last four years. Ended up staying eight and a half years in Los Angeles. We're supposed to be there for two. We ended up staying eight and a half. We've been back a year and just shy of a year and a half now. And um, I absolutely love Melbourne. I love the people, but my God, I miss Los Angeles and, and the people and the network and the friends that I have over there. Yeah, that's crazy, man. So I'm curious, like, um, because cause I, I really want to talk about Creative Cubes and everything you're up to uh, here now you're back in Melbourne, but I want to go a little bit deeper on on Petloo and and, and and everything um, few and far between. So uh predominantly was it an online business or or you sold um to to distributors or yeah yeah so so it started off as a really traditional business uh we would manufacture products at a plant package them up and then sell them through retail and distribution um both domestically and internationally and globally so distributors would be buying product by the container load and then selling it through their distribution networks and that was really 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 strong business um, e-commerce wasn't really strong in 2003 when I first started and sort of like the threat to retailers of starting your e-commerce business after you, you know, hundred percent of your revenue is generated through retail and distribution. The, the, the sort of the, the, the becoming of e-commerce was, was a threat to some of these retailers. They're like, if you sell direct, when are it going to discontinue you? So I never really got to a great e-commerce business. I had a good e-commerce business. I did set up, did set up an e-com business, uh, which sold directly, but it didn't sell directly in markets that we had retail and distribution in. It sold in markets where we didn't. And sort of like, it was a good business, but you know, the, the product was a big product. So shipping was quite expensive. And so really I was kind of stuck. I really had these aspirations of running this awesome e-com pet business. But the reality was like, because I had a hundred percent of my income or call it 99% of my income coming through brick and mortar, you kind of never want to bite the hand that feeds you. And so I never set up e-com. I did sell through Amazon, SkyMall, FrontGas, sold through e-com retailers or e-retailers, but direct to consumer was a very, very small business for us just because I guess the age in which we were born and the way in which the business was set up and the disruption of the internet for us was not something that we did direct, but it's something that we, I mean, we, we, we sell sold millions of dollars through Amazon and, and catalog companies and, and, a, and a bunch of really cool players, but the tradition business was very traditional. Yeah. Gotcha. So, um, can you talk me through like, uh, like, so you started it in Melbourne, like you said you were manufacturing in a plant, like how did you go about like producing that product and getting it right? Like you obviously had the idea, were there any other, cause I don't really know this space, like were there any other players with this idea or you're 
like this 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 product was completely new unheard of it was just basically like an invention like can you talk me through that yeah so um i guess we got out we got our um we got ourselves known in the market through the television show uh the new inventors which was on the abc back in in those days yeah wow so how'd you get on there like like so what happened like you so you yeah, it was come, a really cool yeah. story a really cool story. Um, we we eventually moved from a one bedroom apartment to a two bedroom apartment, and um, as part of the facade of creating a business, I had a PO box because we didn't have an office. Well, I did, but it was my spare bedroom. Um, and so I uh, used to walk the dogs in the afternoons up to the PO box, and um, you know, get an ice cream or do something, and and sort of check the mailbox mostly for checks. Um, believe it or not, which retailers would send me for for product that we'd ship them the, the week before or a month before, whatever their terms were. And um, I applied for the new inventors like anyone else would, I think via their website. And I ended up getting a letter in the mail, in the PO box to say, thank you for your application. You know, we get hundreds of thousands of applications. And while, while we're enthused about your, it was very generic, right? Um, it, it'll take us several months, if at all, to come back to you. I'm literally like scrunching this piece of paper up going like how many other thousands of people got this? And my phone rang and I'm like, hello. It's like, hi, this is so-and-so. I'm from ABC TV. You got your application. I was like, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I got your letter. Thank like really dismissive and really like sort of like blase about it. They're like, what are you doing on Friday? <laughs> I'm like, it's Wednesday. What do you mean? What am I doing on Friday? Uh, <laughs> but like, we want to fly you to Sydney. We want you on our show on Friday night. It's going to be our 99th episode. Um, and uh, we got on the show and ended up winning the People's Choice Award. People voted in, I guess, much like American Idol or Australian Idol, if that's still relevant today. And, and, and we won. We won the People's Choice Award. And from there, we went on to win um, the Australian Pet Product of the Year. And then we won a bunch of international design awards and a whole bunch of things. But really, to answer your question, it was very inventive. It was very um, gr ground up. Um, sort of like came up with an idea, was not really looking to sell it, was just looking to solve my own problem. The problem that I solved, people that were coming to our apartment were like, this is incredible, you should sell it. I'm like, really? And then sort of like like I said, that entrepreneurial instinct just took over and I started you know, 10 pet stores a day, five days a week for months at a time and, and, and built it into you know, multi-million dollar uh, business uh, over the course of, a couple of months, couple of years, um, and then grew it exponentially uh, globally um, mm. from there. I see. So um, when you said like uh, like a like a five pet stores a day, do, what what do you mean by that? Literally putting the pet loo. Do you remember these old bag trolleys back in the day? You used to have this like bungee cord. You'd strap your suitcase or your bag to it. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I literally had one of those. Uh, I would strap the pet loo to it because this thing was like just under a meter by a meter. Mm -hmm. I was like 90 centimeters by 90 centimeters. Strapped a pet loo to it and literally carted it from, from store to store, neighborhood to neighborhood across Melbourne. And you just um, and pitch. Then I got, just pitch. Just pitch. And then I got into a, a large chain, um, pet stock. Uh, Shane Young and David Young uh, founded that business. I think they've got you know, a couple hundred stores today. Um, but at the time, they had 12. And... Um, I literally had 12 customers and I found, met Shane Young and he was like, yeah, I'll give you a go, mate. And um, I literally doubled my store count for 
12 to 24. And then not so long after that, I visited Pet Barn, um, which is now close to 300 stores across Australia. I think they had 10 stores. And I became part of what they call core. So I pitched to this guy called Jim Watson. And Jim basically said, I want to put this as part of our core range. And what that meant was for every new store that would open, I would get X amount of units ordered and product ordered. Um, and I'd be part of their core range. So as they opened up 10 new stores a month or 10 new stores every two months, I'd get 10 new customers. And then that grew into the hundreds because my product was selling off the shelves and they liked it. They liked me. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of like from there, I then got into big chains like Petco, who had like nearly 2,000 stores or 1,500 stores across the US plus a raging e-commerce business. Um, and then the numbers just started to stack a lot faster. And then I had a bit of a reputation and um, for, you know, delivering to, to good quality products for a good price. But, you know, I delivered on my word at every time. So, yeah, does that, that kind of answer your question? Yeah, man. Um, I'm curious. There's a couple of things that I wrote down. Um, tell me about your pitch, like in the early days, because I think one thing that it's intimidating sometimes is when you come up with a product or you have an idea, you've got to be able to try to sell it. Like, um, how how did you pitch? Um, when you said you walked to store by store, like you did five stores a day. Like, like what did that look like? Like, any, anything yeah. that people can learn. There, there was nothing magical about it. Um, and to be honest with you, my first pitch. I think I cut my finger opening like one of the like an edge of the edge of the loo. Like I, I cut my finger open, and but every every store that I visited, my sort of like my pitch became refined, refined, refined because the person that I was seeing at 9 a.m. was a different person at the 10 a.m., which was a different person at the 11:30, and so the the conversations that I had between 9 and 10 helped shift and change the pitch between 10 and 11. And so on and so forth. But the reality of how I went is I sold the product based on value. I never sold product, and I still don't sell product um, on, on price. Um, I just never have. I'm sort of potentially allergic to price from from a from a consumer perspective. The re the reality is, in my world, I I really don't care. And obviously, I don't have unlimited funds, so I can't be stupid about it. But I don't care what it costs. If you're going to make a difference and it's going to solve a real pain point for me, like there's, there's, I'll throw everything that I've got at it. You know what I mean? So I'd sold on value. I sold on convenience. I sold on, you know, being a good person. I sold on quality. I sold on everything but price. Um, and the reality, even though my product was a 200 US MSRP, the reality, and that's a big, that's a big number. For a consumer product, um, the the reality is that people were spending, you know, five to ten times that amount per year on pee pads, which are messy, grotty, bad for the, you know, bad for the environment, super expensive over time, consumable aspect. So, like, I was able to benchmark ourselves against that, and then started serving ads, you know, digital, not digitally, but um, via print media to like, this is how old this business is now. Yeah. Direct um, mail, man. Yeah. Yeah. I would start saying like, like, you know, a pallet high of pee pads versus one little box. Um, and then show you would spend 
you know, two thousand dollars a year on pee pads, and you can spend two hundred bucks once off with us. Like, you know, what are you thinking? <laughs> and so, and sort of like, I was able to like create a new category in the market and continue to execute um, and 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 create happiness and and customers and loyal customers would refer. And even today, like like even today, someone someone Facebook messaged me the other day going. What type of dog do you have and where can I get a pet loop from? I'm like, dude, I've like sold this company like eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing. It's, it's still going on. It's probably the company's bigger and better than ever. It's in amazing hands with PetSafe, um, a, you know, a real, a real large conglomerate for, you know, pet product manufacturing. And it still exists. And my daughter, Maddie, uh, her name is Madison. She's six. She thinks I'm famous because I'm on the back of the box still, and I and I oh, still wow. look like I'm yeah, I still like like I still look like I'm 28 <laughs> or 23 when I first started the company. So um, she thinks I'm famous in that regard. But um, and when you ask her like, why do you think I'm famous? She goes, well, you you're on the back of Petlu. You're on the back of the box of every Petlu, and that's sold all over the world, so everyone knows who you are. I'm like. Yeah, I kind of wish they did. I kind of wish that was a reality, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's crazy, man. So, a um, few more questions uh, before we uh, switch gears. I want really want to talk about Crev Cubes and how that all came about, and, yeah. and Orange Theory and things you got going on there. But um, how much do you know on how to how much to give retailers? Like, if someone right now is selling a physical product, how, how, what what's your recommended kind of percentage wise? Um, to sell to retailers versus RRP. Yeah, sure. So here in Australia, we're, we're not allowed to tell retailers what to sell for because that's considered price fixing. Um, or, you know, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't, I don't want to go too deep into that. But of course, I, of course. You know, but yeah. if, I, if I look into the US, you know, we have MSRP or what they consider MAP, Manufacturers Advertised Pricing. And MAP is a big thing for e-commerce. Like you can, you can turn off a retailer for uh, violating MAP. Um, manufacturers advertise pricing. Um, the, the general rule of thumb is sort of like d- depends how depends like depends who you are, but like it kind of like it works out like this: if you manufacture something for a dollar and a, your cost of goods is a dollar, you know, I think once you take in your overhead and all the rest of it, you know, your your overhead and 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 running costs might be another dollar. So you sell for like three dollars, okay, to a just to a distributor. A distributor would then buy it in, in container loads or bulk loads or pallet loads, or they would have to buy larger quantities than onesies, right? Uh, single skew items. They would buy it for $3 and then sell it to their retailers for $5, and the, and the retailer would sell it for $10 at retail, $9.99. That's sort of like really rough, really rough numbers. You know, you could argue that. You know, it costs you a dollar, so you sell it for two, which would then sell it for four. It would retail for eight. But sort of like you want to make money, um, so you put your, you know, make call it a hundred percent markup. The retailer only wants to make sort of like thirty percent. Uh, sorry, the distributor only wants to make thirty percent, and the retailer wants to make a hundred percent. And so it really comes down to cogs, cost of goods, and then and then success. It doesn't really matter. I mean, if you say it's a ten dollar item and you're moving one a week, uh, it's not really it's not really a, a ten dollar item because the market's not responding favorably to to the way you priced it or your product is uh, or what your product is. So you know, then you've got to work out 
Well, if I can produce it for a dollar and sell it for two and it retails for eight, will I get a 30% lift? You know, so then you've got to play the volume game and it starts to become complex and you've got algorithms and market adaptation. There's a whole bunch of things. But I think if you manufacture for one, you sell for three through distribution and five to retailer and 10 to consumer, you have an opportunity to be an omni-channel as well. So you could sell across all three channels uh, as a manufacturer today. So you could you could sell to so I would be let's put, take myself back to Petlu days. I'm here in Melbourne, Australia. I've got a distributor in Canada. I would say, okay, Mr. Distributor, you can buy it for three dollars and you can sell it for five, and it would retail for ten. But here in Australia, my I, I have a direct relationship with retailers, so I would sell it straight for five. But then I've got the additional expense of the the overhead in running that sales rep through the street, right? And car, gas, and all the rest of it. Gotcha. Um, okay, that makes sense. Thank, thank you for sharing. Uh, you mentioned uh, that your business was had a recurring revenue model like a printer cartridge model. Um, yeah. So, so basically, people would set up Petlu at, at their apartment um, or their place um, that doesn't have a backyard and effectively there were some sort of other components of the product that that would be reusable and you would offer a subscription for that yeah totally um so we had um we had a bunch of consumable products so like the four areas that i constantly got asked was love the product how do i train my dog uh doesn't it smell and and how do i clean it um, and so I know there are only three components, but the fourth was replace the grass, right? So the first was we we created a product. This is all time. I love this. Um, we created a synthetic urine, or for your American American uh, viewers, uh, synthetic urine. And what that was is pets by nature are very territorial. So if you're, uh, I don't know if you've got a pet, but but to the listeners out there. The dog sniffs around, even if you go to the park or walk down the street, the dog will sniff, 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 and it will smell another dog's peed or or pooped in that area. And from a dominance and territorial thing, they'll mark over the top. So what we did was we created a synthetic urine. It was the most hideous product, but it was my number one selling product. <laughs> and and basically, we helped train the dog by by basically simulating that another dog had gone there. Wow, that's so, crazy. So, so, but so you can imagine, like, and that was like a nine ninety nine bottle of urine. This thing sold like nothing else because so many people with new dogs or dogs in general want or new environments wanted to train their dog either on the pet loo or not on the pet loo to go in a specific spot. So the product was called Skip to My Lou, as in Skip to My Lou, my darling. Yeah, yeah, wow, wow. That's, and, that's um, genius. Skip, Skip to My Lou basically was an additional $10 or $9.99 at retail, um, which you could buy, which would help, help you train your dog how to go and where to go. Um, the second question was, doesn't it smell? The products that it was made out of were non-porous, so nothing got into the product. And then inside of the catchment reservoir, that I had. So what happens was the dog did their business on the grass, which looked and felt like real grass, but it wasn't. It was fake grass. It would train through to a collection reservoir uh, via this. It's kind of like the George Foreman grill, although um, definitely do not recommend you eating off of it. 
<laughs> but it would then it would then land in this receptacle, right? This little like <laughs> one and a half two liter jug. <laughs> Too much so detail, I, man. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, but you know what? Actually, saying that took me back to 2008 when I used to pitch this at trade shows. So I'm kind of finding my own, my old flow. Um, but what but what happened was uh, in the caption reservoir, I created this thing called the pea pod which was basically a biodegradable uh, container which had uh, super absorbent polymer in it, which was also eco-friendly and disintegrated. Um, it's kind of like the stuff you'd find in a nappy or a diaper, but it was untreated, it was eco-friendly, it was all natural. And so when the dog peed and the, and, and the stuff landed in this reservoir, the pea pod would turn it into a solidified gel. And so you wouldn't be able to smell the urine because everything would be trapped and all the pathogens and all the bacteria would be trapped. So we saw pea pods. Pea pods were our, probably our biggest uh, revenue generator because we strategically placed them seven pea pods into a packet. A pea pod would last sort of like two to three days. Um, the two being, hey, this is now a two-week spend. The three being, hey, this is now a 21-day spend. Um, and so it was $20 at retail, but people would be buying two two boxes of that a month. And so my printer was now spitting out $40 of recurring revenue every month, or you know, at that's the top end, $20 a month at the low end for every loo that was in market. We then had we then developed a cleaning solution which was chemical free, biodegradable, and eco-friendly. It was non-harmful, there was no chemicals in it. Um, it was totally safe for both the, the people, the pets, and the planet. And um, it wouldn't also, a lot of people got into cleaning their loos with like Ajax and like these chemical beds and actually would deter the dog from going back to that spot. What we care did was it took care of, of the germs and the bacteria, um, yet it didn't harm the pet or deter the pet from returning to the place. And if it did, if you did use another product, you would then apply skip to my loo to get the dog back on, right? So you can now, and then we had replacement grasses, people were buying, you know, two to three replacement grasses a year, which wasn't a big revenue for us, but it was still revenue. And so um, you couldn't go anywhere else. Like, you know, all that stuff was patented, trademarked, protected. Um, and so I created this nice little ecosystem before we talk about ecosystems, you know, before we talk about the most famous ecosystem being Apple and iTunes, and now it's iCloud and devices. And this was a real ecosystem within itself. And, um, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of loos being sold in the market every year. You can start to see how that revenue starts to stack up quite quickly. Yeah, man. It's pretty impressive, dude. Um, so so it, it was recurring revenue, but not kind of like uh, people would sign up for a subscription per se. But but pe people were in the ecosystem. They would come back. Yeah, they would. They would come back. But um, the reality is that, you know, Amazon started subscription. There was wag.com, uh, which was owned by Quidzy. There was a ton of e-com retailers that had these products on subscription. So while I wasn't selling consumer direct, the, these consumers were signing up via their preferred uh, retailer. And that retailer was then, um, you know, they were on subscription through that retailer. Got you. That makes sense. So, so it sounds like a, an amazing business, dude. So, um, what what happened? Like like what? Why did you decide to sell it? And and um like like how how many like did you have an office in LA? Like what exactly happened there, man? An office in Melbourne so, or what? 
Yeah, kind of the segue into where I'm at today is very different to where I was back then. And, um, but it's all part of the same path and the same journey. So um, we, had, we had a warehouse uh, manufacturing facility, warehouse and office here in Collingwood in Australia, in Melbourne. And um, when I moved abroad, I basically loaded my product into uh, 3PL, third-party logistics centers. Um, in my case, my product was in uh, Reno, Nevada, and, and Winchester, Virginia for the East Coast. And I was in Los Angeles, California. Um, to save costs, and as much as we were a very established business, I went to the U.S., um, and you can read about it very <laughs> It's out there. The story's out there. Inc. Magazine did a story on it. You know, I, I basically went to the U.S. I decided that the dollar, when I decided to move to the U.S., the dollar was like 97 cents to one. So it was very strong. I call it dollar for dollar. The peak of the global financial crisis, I land in the U.S. and the dollar dropped to 58 cents. So I had 300,000 Aussie dollars to invest into my U.S. business. And it my, my just converting my cash I ended up with like 164,000 or 154,000, something like that. Oh uh, my from- God, wow. So I was basically, um, I was up shit creek without a paddle, so they say. And so I, I tried to keep costs lean. And, and so even though we were a great business over here doing, you know, a few million dollars a year in rev at, at a healthy, at a healthy profitable margin, I, I basically entered the US market as a startup, right? And so, I basically operated my business, even though my product was in Virginia and Nevada, I operated my business out of my spare bedroom in Venice, California, or Venice Beach, California. And so I didn't need to see product because, you know, I would know how much inventory via the, the sort of ERP system that we had, what, uh, what inventory was on hand in which, in which warehouses, I was EDI compliant, so there was constant telecommunication between um, or EDI pass, passing between the two, two businesses, uh, or between warehouse and, and my laptop, and or my my software NetSuite, and so you know I started basically working from home again. Um, in we had a three bedroom apartment in Venice Beach, and one of the bedrooms was my office, and so over a period of time, it just became harder and harder to work from home. Um, you know we lived abroad. And Simi was like, would just like run into the third bedroom and go, hey, do you want to go do this? Do you want to go do that? And I'm like, yeah, I totally want to go and do that. But like, please, like right now I'm, I'm working. Like she's like, yeah, but you like, you know, you, you work in your own. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, firstly, I'm shit scared. That's for starters, because like I just lost $160,000 in conversion. Secondly, I got no customers. And, and thirdly, like, like I have to get back to grassroots. I got to get back to the hustle. I got to get back to what made success, the, the business successful in Australia. I had to basically repeat those steps, you know, six, seven years later. And so it became too hard to work from home because Sim only had me there. And we were this young, uh, young couple that were living abroad as well as working abroad and sort of trying to, I was trying to balance out both life, both sides of the life. I felt like I was on this treadmill during the day trying to like pound out the pavement and, and kind of crank up more orders and new business. And then I'd finish and be like completely depleted. And then seem to be like, cool, I've been waiting for you to come home all day. I want to go here. Let's go there. And like, not in a, like just in a, an adventure, uh, in a, uh, being someone that was really keen on the adventure. And I had to, 
as her husband, I was like a super, I also wanted to do that, but like, you know, burning it at both ends basically. And so it got to a point where I feel like it was unhealthy for, for me personally to live and work in the same apartment. Um, I felt like it was unhealthy for the relationship um, as a new married couple. Um, and not that anything was bad. I just felt like, like I was going through a lot of the processes and it wasn't fair to her. Um, I was also going through the grind as an entrepreneur and like the last thing I wanted to do was sort of like close the door and, and so I changed my frame of mind and like, honey, I'm home sort of thing when I'm literally like I've been on home since 6 a.m. grinding it out anyway. So I, um, given that I didn't have a need for product or storage of product, I, I found a co-working space in Santa Monica, California called Rock, Real Office Centers. Um, it was... It was uh, created at the old former Google headquarters in Santa Monica. Google moved to Venice, and this guy uh, came in and took over the the, the old Google headquarters and, and basically created a co-working space. And it worked out to be cheaper for me to get a two-bedroom apartment and have my office in the co-working space um, than it was to have a three-bedroom apartment. And so... Um, that just changed everything for me. It changed everything because I was in the heart of Silicon Beach. And for some of your listeners, you know, you've heard of Silicon Valley. Silicon Beach is sort of like the Santa Monica neighborhood um, of the tech world. It's the third largest tech sector in the United States. And I was surrounded by all these amazing entrepreneurs like, like Kalanick um, and, and Uber were born um, not far from there and actually had an office literally, you know, Nate, you've been to Creative Cubes, it's sort of like one side of the building to the other, you know, Uber's pumping away. What the hell is Uber? It's just, this, it's a tech startup. You, 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 you know, they may not make it, so you may not hear about them, but you obviously know about them today. So like I was surrounded by these types of people. I was going to an event every Saturday where um, sort of the founders of Google and sort of like, you know, um, Evan Spiegel and, and like all these amazing, talented, big names are known today, but they weren't big names back then. And sort of like I fell in love with the co-working landscape and I sort of fell in love with collaboration and I fell in love with community. And it's something that was so refreshing to me as an entrepreneur, you know, even from my Australian business where I had an amazing team of 15 employees but we were all talking about the same thing, the Petlu this, Petlu that, da, 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 da. this retailer, that retailer. Pushing myself into a, a co-working space, I was the only guy in pet, um, not in tech. And, but you know, people next door and two offices down the road was like, he's an outsourced um, CFO. He's he an outsourced PR media. He's an outsourced CT, CTO. You know, like all these people were in this building and all this incredible talent. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And so in 2013, I sold my company um, and then started another company, a dog walking business, which didn't last very long. It got acquired very quickly. Oh, but, really? Uh, how, how come it got acquired really quickly? Um, there was a bunch of reasons. We we're running out of money, so we didn't have much of a choice um, but to, to get bored. But there was also this threat that some of these other digital com tech companies had got way more money than us and were going to squash us. So we may as well just sold to them and sort of have had a, an exciting adventure um, with some wins. 
but not the big wins. And um, But all of that was born in this co-working space. And that company today is called Rover.com, just, just for reference. It's, it's, it's an incredible business. Um, they're in the dog sitting market and they wanted to get into dog walking. And, um, you know, they're, they're led by a phenomenal entrepreneur in Aaron Easterly um, and Brent, um, their CTO, uh, COO. But uh, my, my point is that sort of like while I was doing Petlu, I was really like, I feel like I'd come alive in this co-working space. And, and while I am the most loyal person, hopefully on the planet, that's how, how loyal I regard myself, the, 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 the co-working space was very much like a mistress to my pet business relationship. Um, I, I sort of like, I've, n- I've not fallen out of love with pet. In fact, I'm still a, 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 an investor in a pet, in a pet business that's doing exceptionally well uh, globally um, called WAG. Uh, watch and grow dog food um, product made here in Australia and it's now exporting to the US and Canada but while I love the pet landscape I really really love community and collaboration and surrounding myself with people like-minded people that want to win and so really in 2013 before I decided to come back to Australia in 2016 I called my business partner, Andy Fernie, and I said, Andy, like, come to LA. I want to show you some things. And uh, we agreed in 2013 we would start a business called Creative Cubes. Now, oh, wow. So yeah. 2013, that's a while back, man. Yeah, but we both got distracted. I started a dog walking business, which was then eventually uh, plugged into Rover.com. And Andy, Andy was growing a business and take, about to take a, 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 an exit or a partial exit in his supply chain logistics business. Um, and so timing wasn't right. My kids didn't want to come back to Australia just yet. My wife wasn't ready. Like there were a whole bunch of reasons why 2013 we didn't launch Creative Cubes. But in 2016, March 2016, I called Andy and said, mate, just sold. I'm about to come back to Australia. Do you want to, do you want to still do this? Like we've been talking for a long time. And he's like, yeah, man, get on the next plane. Let's do this. And so in December of 2016, we signed our first building in Cremorne. Um, we've got our second building under construction. We only launched the business in true to consumer or to members, September 11 of all dates, uh, 2017. Um, and so we're like seven months old right now in our first building. And, uh, we've got our second building under construction in Hawthorne, course, right opposite Swinburne university. And we're building an incredible community. I mean, I, I hope you can testify to that. Yeah, man. Um, I, I really love what you guys got going on. And I really like as well, um, like your, your level of attention to detail. I'm just curious, like if someone wants to start a co-working space and, and do it at, at just like such a high quality that you guys are doing it, like just, just everything, like where, where does that come from? Like, cause you've never done it before. Is, is it come from just, just, just seeing like, you know, like you, it, what, how it goes down in the States or, or what? Like, no, so not even that, man. This is all personal, right? So, um, <laughs> Nathan, one day I'm going to have you over to my house. Um, and you'll, and you'll probably say to yourself, man, this feels like creative cubes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like, I mean, genuine, I say that. Um, but, you know, like, I, I want to always deliver the best. I want my customers, my members, consumers of my product to, to know that when they're interacting with something that I'm involved with, 
that it's second to none. And so the attention to detail is really a pride thing. Um, and it's also, it also comes from a, 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 an area where I can't expect you to buy it if I'm not prepared to buy it myself. And so the attention to detail that goes into it is really me making sure that if the tables were turned and I was walking into this, if Creative Cubes was, you know, the founder, the founder product, um, and, and me walking in, I, I want to be, I want to be wowed. I want, I want that consumer to just be sort of like, not, not in an arrogant way, but like shut up and take my money. Right. And so I don't really focus on the profit aspect of the business, although the business is profitable um, and at scale becomes even more profitable. I focus on delivering the best, making people happy. And then from there, I'm successful. But if I can't deliver the best and I can't make people happy, it doesn't matter whether it's co-working or it's creating my own sneakers or my do or a dog toilet. If I can't execute on the, on the one fundamental, which is delivering a good quality product to my customer, then I don't deserve to be in business, in my opinion. And so that's sort of where, that's where it comes from. There's nothing like this in the US. There's nothing like I'm not replicating something. Um, I was a consumer. I was never a consumer of WeWork. Um, and I was a consumer of co-working before WeWork came to the West Coast. Um, but I, the, the, the aspect of it is sort of like, it's more like a hotel. It's more like the Four Seasons Ritz-Carlton from a service and experience perspective where nothing we can do is of bother. Not, nothing that you could ask is ever a bother to us, whether it's big or small. It, it's all about just delivering. We never say no to our members. I think the worst thing you can say when you're in sort of like hospitality which is really where I think we are, um, is no. Like, you know, I go to a cafe and I say, can I get a glass of water? They're like, yeah, just go help yourself over there. Like, you would never get that experience here. It's like, can I get you a glass? Like, we, we're always on the front foot. Um, and that's because that's the way I want, it. I want people to be treated. And it's the way I want to be treated as a, as a, as a person as well. So really proud of, the, of the, the execution aspect of it. But it's not something that we're replicating. This is all very unique and, and very, very us. Our DNA is all over this thing. Mm. So, like you talked about the best, and we have to work towards wrapping up, man. But um, you talked about the best. How do you know what the best is? Um, it's it's my, it's my best. It, I, it, it's from me to you, from me as a creator to you as a consumer. This is the best that I have to offer. Can't um, it always so, get better, though, man? No, no, no. I don't say that we're stuck. We're all, the ball is always moving. The journey and the path is always. And sometimes if you're on that treadmill as a true entrepreneur, you know, it gets faster and faster. But um, uh, in terms of like the challenges and, and the, the, the shit that gets flung at you at a daily basis. No, we're actually we're, act, we're actively proactive daily across everything. But um, right here, right now the product that we have on offer today in this minute is the best that we can offer next week or the week after, or even later this afternoon, there'll be adjustments, but we're always like, I, I just, I think that, I think that for us, we're less, we're less focused on the financial outcome 
we think we look at financial outcomes as a byproduct of delivering everything else. And, and if you look at our reviews, um, all of those are sincere people that have written reviews. We know them well, you know, like they're members here. We see them every day. We're talking to them about their businesses. How can I add value? How can I help? You know, Nate, I always ask you all the time, like, man, where, where do you need me to be? What can, what can I do for you? It's, it's not of a self-serving position. It's that if I can help you become better, then I become better. And so that's what we're doing at Creative Cubes. Yeah, amazing, man. I love it. So um, one last question, well, two last questions. Um, first of all, I just wanted to ask, like, you know, obviously there's, there's a big difference between a, a physical product business and a, uh, you know, a co-working space, which is, like you said, in, in as many aspects, kind of like a hospitality business. My, 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 my question around that is, I guess, how do you, how do you plan to scale uh, and do you plan to scale out uh, Creative Cubes? And then the, the last question is, uh, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Then we can wrap. Um, so do we plan to scale? Absolutely. How big do we plan to scale? We'll only ever grow as big as our ability to be able to continue to deliver quality. So I'm not in the business to try and scale to 50 locations. Um, if my product starts to fray at 10 and I am unable to deliver the world, what I consider to be world-class service uh, at building 10 or 11, if I can't, then I'm going to stop there. Um, this is not about scaling for the sake of scaling and having a watered-down product with each, each building that you open. Um, in terms of how we tend to scale, we, like everything here is pro process-driven, right? As much as that doesn't sound great, we, we have an incredible team. We have incredible talent. We will continue to recruit incredible talent because we have a process in which and a, and a, and a standard in which we, we, we execute at. So uh, I'm not overly concerned about, about that. Uh, in terms of the scaling aspect, it, the capital expenditure or the CapEx is uh, significant. So we've got to be performing at our first several locations in order to be able to scale um, because if we're not full or we're not delivering the quality that I am telling you we're delivering um, at all times, we, you know that, that sort of falls on our shoulders. But I'm confident in our performance, man. Like I'm confident that what we have going on here, our DNA, the people at the lead, on the leadership at the leadership table, um, the people at the ownership that own this business, crazy talent, crazy cool talent. And so, um, you know, we we what, what we have here is, you know, the reality of our product. Which, by the way, you, you know, we we definitely are in hospitality, but our product is received by the consumer the minute they walk into the door right and so the way you're greeted the way you're spoken to the the hospitality that we have the lengths that we'll go for you the spaces that you can reside in the environments that you know foster and drive creativity and thought and um taking people to the next level that's our product all of that is our product it's not just slap some paint on the wall and put some desks in a room 
there are there are co-working spaces that are like that, but that's not what we're doing here. Um, we are we are curating our community. We're not. If you show up with some money to become a member of Creative Cubes, and, and you're not a good person or you're not the right fit, you you won't get in the door. And I don't say that with arrogance. I have a I have an obligation and a responsibility as a leader of this company and of this community to make sure that the people that are in here are, are, are positively going to impact other people that are in here and not and not the opposite. So um so so there's a lot of things that go into it. And the reality is I built this business based on what I wanted when I was sort of like peddling my peddler business. I wanted this type of environment which helped would take me to the next level. I wanted to be surrounded by people. I wanted to be around the venture capitalists and the startups and everyone in between. Um, and that's what we have here. You know, we have tabletop businesses which are trying to find their way all the way up to frequent visits from from the group at Founder, from you guys at Founder, all the way up to, you know, full-time residents in Uber rides and Uber Eats um, and everything in between. Um, and so, you know, grabbing a glass of water or sort of like, you know, sitting, sitting in the, in, around the kitchen, having those conversations fosters growth. And, and that's, that's part of our product. That's, that is our product. So, so from that point, in, in terms of how to get a hold of us, I think very simple, um, creativecubes.co or creativecubesco on, uh, on, on the web um, and every social channel as well. So Instagram is probably our most favored because we're, we've got beautifully designed spaces and Instagram is, allows us to, to promote that, that art. Um, but we're also on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all the rest of it. So and you can always hit me up as well at Toby Scovron, T-O-B-I-S-K-O-V-R-O-N on Twitter. Um, always try to make myself available, man. Awesome, man. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time speaking with me today, man. And uh, it was great to get to know more about uh, you you and your background and, and all the gold that you've shared with us. So uh, thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Nate. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.